BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hello, friends and neighbors. Welcome back to the Bill Press Pod and welcome to this week's Roundtable, where we look back at the big stories of the week and try to make some sense of it all with the help of three of Washington's top political reporters. This week was consumed for the most part by reaction to the passing just one week ago today of Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, which set off a sometimes unseemly but ongoing debate about when and how her replacement on the court would be named. One thing for sure, Ginsburg's death and the battle over her replacement stole the spotlight for a few days from the coronavirus pandemic, which not only rolls on, but this week passed the toll of over 200,000 Americans lost to the disease with no end in sight. And the 2020 campaign rolled on in two different universes, it seems. Huge unmasked campaign rallies for Donald Trump, small masked private events for Joe Biden, with the first presidential debate just around the corner. But is it all meaningless because Donald Trump says he might not accept the results of the election after all? What? Is this America or Belarus? Well, here to make some sense of it all, again, we turn to this week's panel. National political reporter for The Wall Street Journal, Sabrina Siddiqui. National political reporter for Mother Jones, Pema Levy. And White House correspondent for Yahoo News, Hunter Walker. Hello, hello, hello to all of you. Hello, Bill. Good morning. Good to have you here. Thank you. So um, let's start with, uh, here we are in America where we've already considered uh, one of the, certainly the pillars of our democracy is that we elect our leaders and every two years or every four years, it, if we don't like what they're doing, we have a chance to make a change. Uh, and leaders have always said until now, uh, well, whatever the voters decide, we will accept their voice. Donald Trump now says, I'm not so sure. Here he is just two days ago in the White House briefing room. Win, lose, or draw in this election. Will you commit here today for a peaceful transferal of power after the election? Well, we're going to have to see what happens. You know that I've been complaining very strongly about the ballots, and the ballots are a disaster. I and, understand that, but and, people are rioting. Do you commit to making sure that there's a no, peaceful transferal of power? We want to have get rid of the ballots, and you'll have a very trans. We'll have a very peaceful. There won't be a transfer, frankly. There'll be a continuation. Uh, the ballots are out of control. He's speaking, of course, of mail-in ballots. Hunter, you cover the White House. I mean, can the president get away with this? Well, well, let's start with something important here. Uh, we have aggressively fact-checked President Trump over the past three years and change. But this statement was absolutely correct. If we get rid of the ballots, he simply, <laughs> he simply will not have to transfer power, and we will have a continuation. So I, I want to award him for an inarguably true statement. Um, obviously, that's not legal. That's not constitutional. Uh, 
what he's saying, he's connecting this to what are baseless, baseless fears he's repeatedly raised um, about mail-in ballots. And it's funny because I, I recently did a Twitter search and I pinpointed the exact moment where he began raising these fears. Uh, because in October 2016, I guess when he thought it was to his advantage, he was tweeting Florida, Kansas, Maine, uh, Minnesota, New Jersey, a bunch of other states. It's the last day to mail in voter registration forms. Get the forms so we can MAGA. So that's Trump in 2016. And then in April of this year, mail-in ballots substantially increases the risk of crime and voter fraud. There's no evidence for that. And Trump actually in recent days has been promoting vote by mail in Florida. So he's clearly sort of raising these fears in states where he's concerned about it and actually doing mail-in pushes where he thinks it's good for him, voting by mail himself. Uh, The question is whether he can get away with it. And, you know, with the Republicans headed to a very strong Supreme Court majority, we just saw Lindsey Graham indicating he believes the court will decide the election. I think that question is up to them. And, and if they're able to get the kind of majority that he's heading towards, uh, he just might be able to do this. So what do you t- what's your take, Sabrina? Is he is Donald Trump just pulling our chain because he knows he'll say something like that and people are going to just react with outrage and talk about that and nothing else? Or is he serious? Well, I would say that now that he's been not just threatening for a number of days not to accept the results of the election, uh, it's it's important to think about the months-long campaign that he's been waging against mail-in ballots and the pros- and trying to undermine the legitimacy of the election. I think it absolutely should be taken seriously because he spent all of this time sowing discord and casting doubt on the integrity of the absentee ballot process, even though everyone knows that there are no significant concerns about people voting by mail. And the furthering of that campaign is to now say, well, if we can't trust the ballots, then we don't know what the actual result is. And probably to try and create enough of enough chaos that maybe this ends up in the courts where, hey, what do you know, he's going to by then have installed his third Supreme Court justice to the bench. So I think it's an absolutely real threat. Uh, this is not the first time that he has tried to, or at a minimum, refuse to accept the results in advance. This was also something that was fairly prevalent in 2016. Right. And at that time, it was more of a hypothetical Uh, Now he's actually in a position of power. He is the president of the United States. So, you know, obviously a lot of it will depend also on what, how Congress responds. It is worth noting that the Senate by unanimous consent passed a resolution this week uh, reaffirming a peaceful transition of power. But we've also seen Republicans, in essence, let the president get away with virtually anything. So uh, who can say? But uh, you know, we, we shouldn't dismiss it when it's been part of a month-long effort to try and undermine, or at least in the eyes of the public, the results of the election. Uh, yeah, you know, on that point, Pema, uh, I heard Lindsey Graham yesterday say, we will have a peaceful transition of power. You can take my word. Well, this is the same Lindsey Graham who said uh, that if there's a vacancy in 2020 on the Supreme Court, we will wait until the next president is elected. You can take my word for that. So 
you know, what can we expect from Republican senators? Yeah, I think that the comments yesterday from Lindsey Graham were were really shocking. I mean, <laughs> he, you know, first of all, he's sort of saying like, you know, look, well, you know, it'll go to the courts and the courts will decide. Well, that's like a really shocking thing to say, right? The courts, unelected judges, don't determine the president, right? That's not how a democracy picks its leader. It's through the voters. Um, <laughs> I think I actually like tweeted out about yesterday about Graham's um, statement. I said, you know, oh, I swear to abide by the judicial coup I'm currently <laughs> setting in motion, um, <laughs> which, which is basically, you know, what they're saying here. And I think that, you know, just, just setting that up as something that would be acceptable, that the Supreme Court would pick the president, um, is, is, is scary to me. I think, you know, there should be absolutely no expectation that it would go to the Supreme Court. The expectation should be that we count every vote and the person who got the most votes and according to, you know, in terms of the most states, because we have the Electoral College, that that person um, would become the next president. Uh, so, uh, you know, I, I don't have a lot of faith that Republicans are, um, you know, at least at this juncture, um, going to, you know, enforce the the will of the voters um or stand so, up to trump i guess right and, right, and i mean after the election you know it, maybe it'll be a different case but uh you know right now i'm not seeing right. i'm not having a lot of confidence in what i'm seeing what so hunter everybody's asking i get it all the time what if right i mean what if he says i don't care what they say i i won the i i, I won and uh i'm staying here i'm not leaving so I've heard what, what, what options do we have? <laughs> right. I, I've heard a prevailing view among the press corps um, down here in D.C. Um, that, you know, the Secret Service would never let that happen and sort of the institution would, uh, you know, rebut a, any any effort like that. But, you know, I think past his prologue. And if we look at the history of the Trump administration, uh, there was a lot of faith in these institutional Washington guardrails, be it, you know, the Justice Department, uh, be it sort of the Hatch Act, right? And and we have not seen any of these things that are, you know, designed to enforce these norms uh, hold up in the face of President Trump. The one thing that I think is also... You could, you could add Congress to that list. Right? <laughs> yes, you, you could and should. And the one thing that I think is really important to bring up here is that, you know, these, these concerns of uh, authoritarianism, I mean, you know, this may be the first time he said this kind of thing so explicitly, but, you know, he's cast out about the election. Uh, he's joked about having a third term. I mean, I, I just pulled this up. In, in 2018, you know, I was asking Sarah Sanders about the President Trump's assaults on the press, the Justice Department, and even Steve Bannon. This was right after his firing. And, you know, I said, in attacking critics, is he authoritarian? She said, not at all. The president's simply responding often to the news of the day and, and rejected the idea he can't respond aggressively. I asked him if he was authoritarian in the Oval Office in 2019 when he was meeting with Yair Bolsonaro of Brazil, who people widely, you know, see also as another strong man. Uh, so I think these signs have been there. We've been, some of us have been asking about it. And and now, you know, he's making it really explicit uh, with with less uh, less than six weeks to go uh, before this supposed moment of transition, potentially. Right. So the other big uh, news this week that's consumed us for, for, for several days is, of course, uh, the question of the Supreme Court with the passing of Ruth Bader Ginsburg, um, who would replace her and when. 
Uh, Sabrina, have you looked into this? What What do you think? Is there any doubt now that Republicans will have the votes and will um, confirm a re uh, replacement by November 3rd? Rather? There doesn't appear to be any doubt based on what we've heard from Republicans so far. Uh, Republican aides on Capitol Hill have laid out a really fast timeline for confirming a new nominee. They expect, and of course all this is subject to change, but they expect hearings could begin by the week of October 10th with markups and committee approval by October 22nd and, a, and perhaps a full vote on the Senate floor around October 26th. Again, this is all subject to change, but what they want is to confirm someone prior to the November election. And the only two Republicans who have come out on record saying that they think that the Senate should wait or keep the seat vacant until after the election are Senators Lisa Murkowski of Alaska and Susan Collins of Maine. Uh, you, know, you know, there are a number of Republicans in tough reelection battles this cycle, and there seems to be two ways in which they've considered it. If you are Susan Collins in Maine and you are down in the polls, in part because of your previous vote uh, with respect to the Supreme Court for Justice Kavanaugh, which is one of the uh, votes that has really hurt her in the polls and affected her reelection prospects, then obviously it's uh, it's easier to take the position of saying that they should set follow the same precedent Mitch McConnell set in 2016, that they won't confirm someone in a presidential election year. But then there are others like Tom Tillis in North Carolina and Lindsey Graham in South Carolina who are also in pretty tight reelection battles who say this is actually going to help shore up uh, support with from our base. This will help right. if we're not among Republicans. So, look, I think it's going to happen. There's not a lot that Democrats can do at this stage to stop it. But uh, they do appear to have the votes they can afford to lose three, in which case Vice President Mike Pence would cast tie-breaking vote. And there's just no indication that there are four defections at this stage. Right. Uh, so, Pema, does this uh, choice of a Supreme Court, as, as important as it is and as much attention as we're paying to it, do you think it has any impact on how people vote on November 3rd? Yeah, I think that's sort of the the big question that now everyone is wondering. And, you know, I think it might, but I don't think that the politics are really obvious here. Um, I think normally you say, oh, the Supreme Court matters more to Republicans, um, especially, you know, the pro-life cohort uh, who have been trying for decades now to overturn Roe v. Wade and uh, outlaw abortions. So, you know, to them, this has sort of always been this holy grail. Um, but I do think the ground on that is moving somewhat. I mean, first of all, I think the people that are really energized by the Supreme Court are already going to vote. <laughs> they already know who they're going to vote for. They're, they're already engaged. Uh, and there are some ways uh, that I have seen, you know, pollsters saying uh, that this could help Democrats. You know, one is to talk about health care, for example. Uh, you know, the Republicans have never stopped trying to overturn the Affordable Care Act uh, in the courts. And there's, you know, a case uh, in November that will be heard on the Affordable Care Act. And so I think making mm -hmm. it really clear, um, you know, that these, you know, that health care and these bread and butter issues that people care about are on the line here. Um, I think that that is something that that folks are seeing as a benefit to i hear your dog agrees with me so that's, that's good um but i think that's a area where where democrats um 
I think have a have an option or an ability to sort of bring this back to the issues that that voters trust them more on. So we'll see. Uh, I think that you know we've seen Pelosi and Schumer you know already doing that. And Bill, just really quickly, I think that one dynamic that has shifted to Pema's point is uh, there's a lot more. Uh, enthusiasm on the side of Democrats more broadly that we've seen this election, especially with the urgency to make President Trump uh, a one-term president. But, you know, four years ago, the big rationale that a lot of Republicans used uh, to support then-candidate Trump when they had been uncomfortable with, at a minimum, with his uh, candidacy was the Supreme Court. They made it all about the courts and the judiciary in a bid to have Republicans and even some mm-hmm. maybe moderate voters on the fence hold their nose and vote in his favor. Now I think that that enthusiasm has shifted in part to Democrats who, you know, in previous elections have not really made the courts a wedge issue, but because of a lot of the issues that are up uh, that are at stake, healthcare with the Affordable Care Act back before the court this November, access to abortion, climate change, immigration, they're, they've really managed to rev up the base around the courts, especially with, the, with President Trump now having three uh, vacancies under his watch. And we've seen them raise a record amount of money, Democrats, in the past week. I mean, actually, right. it was $90 million in the first uh, 28 hours after Justice Ginsburg's uh, the announcement of her passing surface. So, so there's a lot of energy on the side of Democrats around this. Hunter, I don't know whether that was your dog weighing in there and wanting to get in the conversation, but let, let, let me let me turn to you. What do you hear from the White House? It looks like, and now here we are, I should point out, um, at the roundtable on Friday morning, about 8.30 on September 25. It's tomorrow when the president says he will announce uh, his nominee. Uh, so does he go with the Catholic from Indiana, Amy Coney Barrett, or the Cuban from Florida, Barbara Lagoa? So there's, I would say Amy Coney Barrett seems to be the front runner um, because, you know, she's had these meetings at the White House. But personally, I would not count out Barbara Lagoa. Uh, the Trump campaign has repeatedly uh, stressed that Florida is their must-win state. Uh, a big thing there for him, uh, and there are some polls that show he could be winning the Latino vote in Florida, uh, increasing those margins and, and maximizing his advantage with Cuban-Americans could be a huge deal to that pivotal state. Uh, I, I certainly don't think politics is separate from this. Uh, but also, you know, among his base, I'm really struck. Uh, I was in Pittsburgh at his, at his uh, rally on Tuesday night, and I asked some of the folks there, you know, whether they were energized about the Supreme Court fight. To in person, everyone told me they were very excited by it. But what struck me is when I asked them why, uh, they all said, you know, they thought that almost every single one said to me, they thought that Republican judges, quote, follow the Constitution, uh, conservative judges more than liberals. And when I would then dial in and say, what does that mean to you? The answers became less and less coherent. It was it was things like one man said following the Constitution means God's law which is, I I don't think, remotely true. Uh, Another person told me, following the Constitution is doing anything that's good for people, which actually really doesn't seem to be a strict constitutionalist (laughs) interpretation. And, And my takeaway from that is, you know, that when I hear the base say we want a constitutionalist, what I'm hearing is parroting of talk radio and Fox News. It's not yeah. something that people actually even understand why they want. But, right. but there is a big segment of his base that is excited about this. Uh, and just finally, before we take a break here, uh, the president did take time out with the first lady yesterday to go up to the Supreme Court to pay his respects uh, to Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Uh, Hunter, you go to a lot of these rallies. He got a little different 
um, reception yesterday when he appeared uh, alongside in the casket of Ruth Bader Ginsburg at the top of the steps of the Supreme Court. And those who were waiting in line to pay their own respects uh, had this message for the president. Um, it sounded like this. Um, the crowd shouting, vote him out, vote him out, reminding me of the World Series game, which I attended uh, last year at National Stadium, where the crowd was chanting when, when he appeared on the big screen, lock him up, lock him up, which I think um, that, that shows why the president does not appear at more public events inside the District of Columbia. All right, with our panel, uh, Hunter Walker, Pamela Levy, and... Um, Sabrina Siddiqui. We'll take a quick break and then resume. Talk about 2020. By the way, this is an election year, right? We'll be right back. And today's roundtable is brought to you by the Labor's International Union of North America, or LIUNA. The good men and women of the Labor's Union under President Terry O. Sullivan, a real powerhouse with American Union movement, over half a million members, active in the construction industry, in the energy field, and in, among public health workers. They're doing great work. We salute the members of the Labor's Union. Thank them for their good work and their support of the Bill Press Pod. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Got your happy price, price line. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops. And neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. And we're back with today's roundtable. Pamela Levy from Mother Jones, Sabrina Siddiqui, Wall Street Journal, Hunter Walker, Yahoo News. And this week, a milestone over 200,000 now died dead from the coronavirus pandemic. Uh, that happened in the middle of the week. The next morning, it did not even appear on the front page of the Wall Street, um, I'm sorry, of the Washington Post. Sorry, Sabrina. And it was below the fold of the New York Times. Has President Trump succeeded in 
basically putting the coronavirus pandemic out of sight on the back pages, Sabrina? Well, no, I think that it's still very much prominent in people's lives. And, you know, it's always frustrating when the media does not give an issue as much attention, particularly a health pandemic that has dominated this year and ravaged uh, so many people's lives and livelihood. I think if you look at a lot of the polling, though, there there's still enough evidence to suggest that coronavirus is very much at the top of the minds of voters going into November. And you have to think about just the impact that this pandemic has had on people across America. You know, when you go, when you're in an election year, oftentimes people say, okay, it's going to be about the economy and jobs, but it's always harder to decipher what issue is touching so many people in such a profound way. If you think about coronavirus, it's something that has truly upended every single aspect of people's lives. Their kid, people's kids are not in school. People are out of work. They can't go back to the office. They can't travel. Uh, so, so I think that this is something that is still looming very large over this country, especially because of the way in which the government has mishandled it and just how far behind the United States is compared to the rest of the world. So even if it's not you know, a given prominent display on the front page of the of the newspaper in the same way that the very grim milestone of a hundred thousand deaths was. I think that it's it's not by any means forgotten, not even close. Well, the president continues to, as he told Bob Woodward, deliberately downplay the impact of the disease, even with two hundred thousand uh, that reaching that milestone this week. Uh, he continued to say basically, you know, uh, it's not a threat to anybody, uh, especially on college campuses. Here he is. It affects elderly people, elderly people with heart problems and other problems. You know, in some states, thousands of people, nobody young, below the age of 18, like nobody. But it affects virtually nobody. It's, a, it's an amazing thing. By the way, open your schools. Everybody open your schools. Uh, okay, Pema, so why are we wearing a mask? Why are we social distancing? It affects virtually nobody. Yeah, it's a completely incredible statement that is opposite to the facts of what we know about this disease. And, and you know, by the way, obviously I don't expect Trump to be explaining this to people, uh, but what we are seeing in the data is that the disease, will, the coronavirus will pick up among young people most likely because of returning to colleges. Um, but then the colleges have to shut down and they go home. And then you just see it moving up the generations. So you see at first you see a spike among, you know, tw- you know, 20 and 30 year olds, and then you see a spike among like 40 and 50 year olds, and then the seniors have it. So, you know, this um, sort of fantasy that he lives in and that he portrays uh, about how this disease affects people and the fact that it's not a big deal and that, you know, you can open schools, no problem. Uh, you know, is, is that it's a fantasy. It's not, it's not how this disease is working and it's not how it's affecting people's lives. And, you know, there are clearly people who show up without masks to his rallies who believe him. Uh, but I think overall that there is a understanding at this point that, um, that he's not really being, uh, honest with people. I saw a a polling number yesterday that I thought was kind of incredible, which was that, um, 50% of Republicans trust Trump 
more than the CDC on this issue, but about 35% of Republicans trust the CDC more. And on the one hand, that's kind of horrifying because you want people to be trusting the scientists. But what, now that the Republican Party is really kind of a Trump cult, uh, the fact that only 50% trust him more, I think, really does say something about the fact that, you know, the fantasies he's putting out there are not being bought by a majority of the people. Uh, Hunter, take us back to the rallies you've attended. Have you, um, you talked to them uh, about uh, RBG and the Supreme Court. Uh, what do they tell you about the coronavirus? So wh- what, what Pema said is absolutely correct. Uh, this claim the president has repeatedly made now that um, it only affects older people, or as he said, quote, virtually nobody, is contradicted by the CDC's own data. Uh, as, as of September 12th, they said uh, people under 50 accounted for over 30% of coronavirus hospitalizations. So that's not just infections, that's serious cases. Mm, right. I found it very interesting that the CDC doesn't actually separate this data very much. It, they have uh, data for people under 18, and then 18 to 50 is a single block. So they make it a little hard to tell just how badly this is affecting young people, but it clearly is. Uh, and at the president's rally, I did ask people about this, uh, just to set the scene for you guys. This was one of these events he's having at an airport hangar. So it's sort of a half indoors, half outdoors location. There were thousands of people there, completely packed in, uh, and masked use, I would say, it was mixed. You know, there were a lot of people wearing masks. There were a lot of people also who weren't. Uh, when I asked folks about this, one woman cited a, a hoax that's been popular on social media saying that only 6% of people um, who have coronavirus, who have died of coronavirus, actually had the virus. She theorized to me, and this is totally baseless, that hospitals are are labeling accidents and other things, coronavirus cases, just to make money. Another guy said to me, quote, I'm healthy. If you're healthy and work out, eat right, get your sleep, you don't have to worry about it. Sorry. And what, what strikes me there is that, you know, people are following the president's words. It may not be a majority of the Republican Party, but people are you know, believing him, he's providing opportunities for them to be in large crowds, and and it's quite dangerous. Right. So all of this, of course, is taking place in an election campaign where Joe Biden is basically saying there's one issue, and it's it's how has Donald Trump uh, responded to the coronavirus pandemic, and the other candidate, Donald Trump, saying basically what pandemic. Um, I built the greatest economy in the world, and I will rebuild it, uh, and I'm in the process of rebuilding it. So let's. I'd, I'd just like to give you the latest numbers I saw this morning on the state of the race and get each of you to respond to whether you think this is something that we can count on. The rep- real clear politics today gives Joe Biden a six-and-a-half point percentage point lead nationwide. In the battleground states, real clear politics— uh, Florida, Biden up 1.3. Wisconsin, Biden up 5.2. Michigan, Biden up 6.6. Fox News out today. In Nevada, Biden up 11. Pennsylvania, Biden up 7. Ohio, Biden up 5. Sabrina, is it all over? <laughs> Well, I got out of the prediction business in 2016. Uh, <laughs> Didn't so we all? <laughs> I'm going to say, uh, look, Joe Biden has had a clear and consistent lead in both 
national and battleground state polls. And so oftentimes when there's hand-wringing in the press about, oh, is he, is he doing enough events or, or how come he's not out there more? I mean, he's obviously been ramping up his travel to battleground states, but, you know, every time there's some uh, questions about the Biden strategy, I think the polls suggest that what he's doing has been working because this election has been dominated by the coronavirus pandemic the president's failures to respond adequately to that pandemic and just the culmination of the Trump presidency. But look, anything can change. A lot can happen. Um, you know, there's still uh, something like six, five or six weeks to go. And a lot of the questions of course will also be about, um, you know, the, the president's threats to kind of bring it back to how we, we started mm-hmm. this podcast that, uh, you know, the, the question of whether or not the president is going to accept the results of the election and, and the efforts, that his, the lengths his administration is willing to go to, to undermine the integrity of the election. So that I think to me is the big question mark looming over what is what has otherwise been a remarkably steady race. Right. Uh, and Pema, it seems going back to the beginning, maybe uh, behind the president's uh, questioning the legitimacy of the presidency is he sees these numbers too and knows that he could very well lose. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. I mean, first of all, this is not a president who has governed as if he was elected by a majority of the people, right? This is a president who has governed, you know, for red states, uh, often explicitly. Um, And then this is a president who has run a campaign pandering to his base and sort of discounting the votes of other people. Um, A president who won the electoral college, but not the popular vote. And I think basically has run a re-election campaign to, again, win the Electoral College and not the popular vote. And I would, you know, I will get in the prediction business to say I would be really shocked if he won the popular vote. Uh, And so the question here is, like, can he eke out a win through the Electoral College? And, you know, for months, he has been behind in most battleground state polls. And so, you know, I think at this point, it's, it's just kind of an, it's not even an open secret. It's just like open uh, that, you know, he is trying to win those states by having them not count absentee ballots and sort of casting doubt on the entire process. Uh, and so I do think, you know, dynamics can change, you know, Trump can, you know, come up from behind, but based on where this, again, as Sabrina said, steady race has been for months now, um, you know, I think we are looking at attempts to win dishonestly. Yeah. And Hunter Walker, how do you see the state of the race, given those uh, polling numbers, uh, the latest ones out so far? Yeah, well, as Pimo, as Pema was pointing out, uh, this is an electoral college question. You know, we saw Trump lose the popular vote by, by you know, three points last time uh, and still win the presidency. Uh, so what that means is that, you know, when we see Joe Biden with a, a, six, a six-ish point lead nationally, that is fairly close, you know, uh, three, three-ish percentage points away from what could be an electoral college loss. Uh, right. You know, that's potentially even inside the margin of error. Uh, also, you know, Joe, Joe Biden in some measures is an overwhelming frontrunner. Right. Because if you take all the states where he's leading, you take those national numbers, it looks like you're potentially headed towards an electoral college landslide. But a lot of those key states have really, really tight margins. Uh, People that I know watching the election are looking very closely at Florida, Arizona, Pennsylvania. 
Uh, and also, I think, you know, Trump has been gaining momentum lately. Uh, in Florida, we've seen it go from five points down to one in the past month or so. Uh, that national lead, I believe, at one point was, was around, you know, seven to nine points and is now down to six. Uh, so things are trending Trump's way. There's also this big effort uh, by the Republicans to preemptively question the results, to knock out ballots. We're seeing attempts to invalidate about 100,000 ballots already in Pennsylvania. Both sides are preparing for a huge legal fight. Uh, the one thing that I think has been missing from our conversation about this is really connecting it to the rallies. And what I mean is that, you know, in every sense of the word, Trump is kind of running on pretending coronavirus doesn't exist. Uh, right. The event that he had in Pennsylvania this week is one of many that seems to have completely violated local local laws. Uh, you know, in Pennsylvania, there are regulations right now requiring mask wearing for everyone, uh, but also banning outdoor events with crowds of more than 250 people. This was clearly that. Uh, so he's, you know, literally presenting people with the message that the virus is over. But also when he is out there physically campaigning like this and, and mocking Joe Biden for being socially distant, you know, these events allow him to register voters. They allow him to get data. They allow him to get cell phone numbers. And generally, we're seeing Trump run a ground game, whereas Biden is taking more of a phone based, socially distant approach. And you know, I think that is a powerful advantage and part of why we see things improving for Trump, uh, you know, because on the campaign front, he's allowed to have traditional operations. And on the messaging front, he's selling a lot of people what they want to hear, which is that this horrible experience we are all sick of is over and it's not. Right. Uh, and the question is, of course, whether he is getting that message out uh, and recruiting people beyond his base, which, of course, you know. We'll find out, uh, I guess, assuming there is a fair and free election, as Kelly McEnany calls it. Uh, and with that, uh, thank you all for your take on the news of the week. Somewhere along the week, there must have been some story that caught your attention and uh, caused you to stop long enough to say, hey, how about this? This is funny or this is serious or this is worth talking about your favorite story of the week. Uh, how about Sabrina? You want to start us off? Sure. Well, a couple months ago on this podcast, I uh -huh. introduced us to the prospect of dogs that could sense coronavirus, <laughs> and I they're back. That. Yes, it's happening. So, four COVID nineteen sniffer dogs have started to work at the Helsinki airport as part of a pilot scheme by Finnish researchers that they hope will find a cheaper and effective way to test people for coronavirus um, is working pretty well. They said, they said that so far and granted this is a preliminary in the preliminary stages, uh, dogs have been able to identify the virus with nearly 100% accuracy. Wow. And they think wow. that it's because um, they can identify it through some kind of sweat or odor that uh, people who've been affected by the virus give off. But look, I've always said from the beginning, anyone who knows me that dogs are the best. And this is further evidence to support my theory that <laughs> dogs are not only great companions, but they're also highly intelligent and have never really been given their due. And when we see dogs in every uh, airport uh, in this country, it just, you know, probably a few months away, Sabrina, we will remember you are the one <laughs> who first told us about it. I sounded the alarm. You did, indeed. Uh, Pema, your favorite story of the week. 
Um, well, I wish mine was as cute and uplifting, uh, but those are actually kind of hard to come by these days. Uh, so I decided I would talk about a story that one of my uh, colleagues wrote. Um, it's called The Terrifying Story of How QAnon Infiltrated Moms Groups. Um, and I think this is kind of just starting to get attention now in the mainstream, but how you know the QAnon conspiracy theory has sort of filtered into the mainstream and some of those ways um, you know, are through, you know, Instagram influencers and the one that my colleague focused on um, was the way in which they've sort of penetrated Facebook's mom's groups. So, you know, oh, I'm moved to this new neighborhood and I join my, you know, the local mom's groups to, you know, learn about the opportunities in the neighborhood. And then pretty soon it's, you know, a lot of disinformation about uh, child trafficking and, you know, getting really deep into these conspiracy theories. Um, and so I think it's, uh, it's not as cute as dogs, but it is um, something yeah. that's happening below the radar. It's pretty scary. <laughs> yeah. yeah, indeed. <laughs> it really is. Wow, wow, Hunter, uh, what caught your attention this week? <laughs> well, I actually, in the past couple of days, have seen QAnon graffiti uh, on the street of my block uh, in, in oh. Northwest DC, which is really not, you know, oh, it's kind wow. of a, a hotbed of liberal liberal Washington, uh, and people are writing things in chalk like uh, "Save the children, kill the pedophiles" with QAnon hashtags. Um, so it really oh, is God. penetrating. But on a better note, uh, <laughs> it's, it's a big holiday this week that I didn't know about. Uh, and, and this comes to us from Katmai National Park in Alaska, which is hosting its uh, Fat Bear Week. And this is an annual celebration where the national park uh, shows us photos of the bears as they emerge from this post. Basically, every summer, the coastal brown bear enters this hyperphagia where they eat pounds of 4,000 calorie salmon uh, every day. So this is like four pounds wow. of 4,000 calorie salmon. I can't even imagine what that is. But but uh, this, the park takes these photos of the bears in this pre-hibernation state and they're just wild. And they also pre present this as a before and after thing. Uh, they, they take care to note this is about body positivity for the bears. We're not fat shaming the bears. This is a, a good and healthy thing for them. But I really do encourage um, any of your listeners to just do a quick Google and search Fat Bear Holly. Because Holly has won this challenge. She really deserved oh. it. And wow, I had I didn't know bears could look like this. I have never seen bears like this. Uh, the bears are massive. Uh, I can't wait to see that. I mean, having just come back from a little vacation at Lake Tahoe, California, um, where we had a bear in our car. We didn't see it, but it was in the car. <laughs> uh, uh, Excuse me. Sorry. How does that happen? And what did you see when in the aftermath? <laughs> black bear hairs in, on the seats of the car. It happened during in, during the night, in the night, so we did not see it. But at any rate, I, I've, I've been into bears ever since then. I can't wait to check out Fat Bear Holly <laughs> from Alaska. All right, and now my favorite story of the week is, you know, one of the th phrases I remember as a kid hearing my grandparents say was, uh, you don't air your dirty linen or dirty laundry, rather, in public. You don't air your dirty laundry in public. I never knew what that meant. I sort of got remembered that this week, though, when the Washington Post did this incredible story about B.B. Netanyahu. Now, let me make the connection. Uh, you know, when foreign leaders come here to this country, 
Uh, they are given all kinds of advantages. They get the motorcade, they get security, they get the Blair House across from the White House. They have a chef. They have, uh, we do all kinds of things for them, including do their take care of their dirty laundry. And the Washington Post reported that almost nobody takes advantage of that except B.B. Netanyahu, who not only gets his laundry done while he's here, but he brings dirty laundry from Israel. He's <laughs> He is known for this, uh, bringing dirty laundry from Israel to be done here in the United States. And the Post reports that this last visit, last week, when he came to the White House, he showed up with four to five suitcases full of dirty laundry that he brought here from Israel and that we taxpayers paid to have clean for him. Um, maybe we should be uh, grateful that he did not do what he did. He and his wife went to Portugal in December according to the Post, where they took 11 suitcases full of dirty laundry <laughs> to Portugal. So, um, and I think you will all be amused by the fact that when he was asked about this um, story, Bibi Netanyahu said it was a witch hunt. <laughs> it sounds more like a schmutz hunt. Bibi's <laughs> got some dirty schmutters. <laughs> Oh, there we go. Hey, guys, Pema Levy, Sabrina Siddiqui, Hunter Walker. Thank you so much for joining us today. Shalom, Bill. Thank you. Thank you. All right. And thank you all for listening. Good to have you with us. Uh, and you know what I'm going to remind you, if you haven't already done so, please subscribe to the Bill Press Pod so we know you're one of our regulars. Wherever you're listening to this podcast, just click on Bill Press Pod and click on subscribe. You are in. Follow me on Twitter, too, at Bill Press Pod. And meanwhile, stay strong, stay safe, stay sane, if possible. We'll see you on the next edition of the Bill Press Pod.